0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenues History Podcast, episode number 21, President James White. Last time, we talked about the rise of health reform in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which arose in importance after the fight over slavery was winding down at the end of the Civil War. Ellen White's visions building on other health reformers in decades past, encouraged Adventists to give up unhealthy foods to practice good hygiene, like showering, yay, and to work in moderation. Now on that last note, James White failed miserably. 1865 began a several-year slump of sorts for the church. Things were going well in many respects, but it was a stressful and hard slog forward for the leaders. The Civil War ended, so yay. Oh, but President Lincoln was assassinated, so boo. A few weeks after Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the Third General Conference elected James White as the second General Conference president. You will recall that James was the first choice for president at the first General Conference, but he declined it for fear that people would say that he pushed everyone so hard to organize the church just so he could grab power. So they elected. John Byington instead of James. We've said absolutely nothing about Byington's presidency because there just isn't that much to say. Byington's style was very pastoral. He spent his time traveling around, encouraging the believers, and organizing the church. Now, he was re elected in 1864, but let's be honest, it was always a matter of time before James White became president. He was the George Washington of the church. He even got dentures like old George, II. The General Conference delegates were busy on other fronts, too. The war may be over, but they still felt the need to commission a deeper study on noncombatancy and warfare, which we talked about in episode 19. They also counseled people to stop holding debates with other pastors, you know, unless it was absolutely necessary. There was also a resolution recommitting the church to support the American government as far as they could, and they also decided that voting in an election could be a good thing, but that an Adventist should never vote for anyone who will preserve slavery or promote alcohol. Finally, there was a resolution lamenting the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Adventists declared that, quote, this prince and great man who was strucken down by his enemies at the very moment when he was studying how to forgive them all. So rest in peace, Abe. Sad news notwithstanding, James White's presidency should have been auspicious. I mean, the nominating committee which elected him couldn't settle on who should be on his executive committee, so they just let James pick whoever he wanted to serve. Let's put it this way. It's kind of like electing James President of the United States and then saying, you know what, we can't figure out who should be in Congress, so why don't you just pick who should be each state's representative, huh? The President of the United States would give anything for the prospect of putting all of his friends in charge and passing whatever law he felt like passing. Now, James wasn't corrupt, but he did ask for Jan Andrews and John Loughborough to be put on the executive committee, and they were. He then made changes to the church's constitution, and these passed unanimously also. Then James was elected president of the Publishing Association, giving him oversight of all the church's publications. So, to continue our analogy, it's like James is president of the United States, and he gets to pick his Congress, and he's in charge of the press. If this man were the greedy dictator a perpetually disgruntled group of Adventists thought he was, here was the time to see it. James White had more power than any other leader would ever have in the Seventh-day Adventist church. So what did he do with it? Did he invade Russia? Did he declare martial law? Did he seek to destroy his many enemies? Not really. James White's two years as president was kind of a long headache. A few weeks after the general conference meeting, Uriah Smith surveyed the horizon and announced in the review that everything was right in the world. He wrote, quote, there are no dissensions in our midst threatening to rend the body. The people of God are united as perhaps never before. End quote. Oh, Uriah, Uriah, if you only knew what was about to happen. The first problem for President James arose in Wisconsin. So, James and Ellen were dispatched there to deal with a family who resisted organization and doubted Ellen White's visions, which isn't really surprising because most of these hotspots of resistance emerged on the border of the church's territory, and most of the time it involved these same two issues, resistance to becoming a denomination and resistance to Ellen White's visions. I mean, it's like there's a textbook of people who are disgruntled with the church, and it just gets passed around Iowa and Wisconsin. After the fire was put out in Wisconsin, another one flamed in, you guessed it, Iowa, James and Ellen found both the Iowa Conference president and the conference secretary preaching the same story. We don't think Ellen White is a prophet, and we don't think the church should be organized. Sigh. Of course, the stakes were raised this time because this was the president and secretary of the conference, not just some meddlesome members. The men were called Snook and Brinkerhoff, which just sounds like a pair of Prussian villains, don't they? Monsieur Brinkerhoff, I presume. I presume they threatened to destroy the entire conference in Iowa. I mean, come on, Iowa. You've been nothing but a pain in the neck. First, J.N. Andrews' fanatical family moves there and stirs up trouble. Then Loughborough and Andrews quit and moved to Iowa, and James and Ellen had to risk their lives to win them back. Now, by this point, if James White gets a call from an Iowa area code, it's just going straight to voicemail. Let's just be honest. Anyway, the Whites confronted Snook and Brinkerhoff, and it all worked out. After James answered their questions, the two men saw their error and apologized. Hey, they even wrote letters of deep, heartfelt sorrow which were printed in the review. Sigh. Okay, let's just go home. As soon as the Whites returned to Battle Creek, they had to choose between two urgent situations. One of them was in Battle Creek and one was near Detroit. They immediately shipped off for Detroit, where Ellen White said James put in the work of two men. Since assuming the presidency... James had scarcely had time to sit down. He was absolutely exhausted. They arrived back in Battle Creek after midnight, and Ellen told him to just rest the next day, right? Don't even go in the work, James. Naturally, James' dutiful husband that he was ignored her and went to work in the office. There was simply too much to do. Well, the day after that, he and Ellen went for a walk early in the morning to get some milk at a friend's house. Seeing that the corn in his friend's field was ripe... James plucked an ear and began to peel the husk off, and then he froze, and then he collapsed. This was a stroke we talked about last time. Actually, it was only the first of five strokes he would have over the next 15 or so years, but Ellen eventually took him to Dr. Jackson's water therapy institution that we talked about last time. They spent the rest of 1865 at Jackson's institution in New York. All the while, friends were sending James the money he needed for treatment. But it was a grueling road for the General Conference president, who lost 50 pounds in these few months. Ellen White really took on the role of a mother bear, disregarding any of Dr. Jackson's advice she didn't approve of, and controlling who could and who couldn't see her husband. Ellen was a sturdy Victorian woman, and Dr. Jackson's advice that James should stay bedridden seemed positively ridiculous to her when it was clear to Ellen that the solution for many things was manual labor. She had to get James out to work. Now, Ellen had a vision on Christmas Eve of 1865 telling them to return home and promising that James would make a full recovery. James was really in no position to move, His health was up and down, and you just didn't know what was going to happen one day or the next. But Ellen thought Battle Creek could do them some good, and James certainly didn't want to live on other people's offerings all the time, so they left in the middle of winter. The May 1866 General Conference session re-elected James as president, even though he'd spent most of the past year on his back, barely able to move. From that point, however, James began to really recover, although there were some setbacks from time to time. As James began to recover, there was another fire waiting for him to put out. And, as luck would have it, it was the exact same fire he had thought he had put out before. Welcome, Snook and Brinkerhoff. Yeah, they said they were wrong, they said they were sorry, and they absolutely were sorry until they weren't. Now, the nefarious pair acquired a printing press of their own and called their paper the Advent and Sabbath Advocate. As usual, very catchy, very creative. They used their newspaper to do what? Ah, of course, attack Ellen White as a false prophet and rail against this newfangled church organization James was up to. The General Conference in May of 1866 voted to recommend to the Iowa Conference that they effectively kick these two men out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church the Iowa conference couldn't agree more, so that was that. The local elder from the church in Waukon, Iowa, was selected to take over as conference president. This elder's name was George Butler. Butler was a born administrator, and he drove himself from church to church, clarifying the confusion and restoring order to the churches. Finally, the whites had someone they could trust in Iowa, and this Butler guy was going places. Snook and Brinkerhoff, by the way, had been baptized by James White, and Butler had been brought in by J.N. Andrews, so if you ask me, I'd rather be baptized by Andrews. As for old Snook and Brinkerhoff, they went a little further along and would eventually form the Church of God Seventh Day, which has around 200,000 members today, so if any of those 200,000 are listening, hey, we got to your part. But even that didn't last. Snook ended up making $1,000 a year as a preacher for a Universalist church. It is said that Brinkerhoff later regretted breaking with the Seventh day Adventist church, proclaiming to an Adventist years later that, quote, I am a lost man. End quote. Brinkerhoff's disciple would later tell another Adventist that after Ellen White's death, he regretted quote, fighting a good woman and a good work. End quote. The result of these very public doubts these men held was that the church realized the need to better explain Ellen White and her visions. And naturally, when the church needed someone to deeply investigate a topic and report, they would turn to one of two people, either A. J. Ann Andrews or B. Uriah Smith. So if you got either of those answers, congratulations, extra credit. Now Smith took this one turning part of the review into a kind of frequently asked questions about Ellen White section. The genius of Smith's method was that he did the intellectual heavy lifting himself. He did his own research. He made a point that he wasn't going to ask Ellen White what she meant by this or that statement. He was just going to read what she wrote and figure out what she meant, just like he expected everyone else to do. So Smith tackled 39 objections, starting with perhaps the most obvious, If Adventists profess to believe in the Bible and the Bible alone as a source for their doctrine, then how do you reconcile the fact that they also listen to Ellen White? So is Ellen White equal to the Bible or not? And what amazes me about this is that this is still one of the common criticisms of Seventh day Adventists today. And various critics will repeat this like, shh, Adventists don't want you to know. And it's interesting that Uriah Smith addressed these doubts head on. It's nothing new. It's okay. It's something that they considered, and they had to wrestle with way back when. Anyways, anyways, we move on. Smith also took on another writing project. Since 1862, he had been teaching a Sabbath school class, the equivalent of a Sunday school, for my apostate Christian listeners, on the book of Revelation. Smith thought these notes were eventually worth publishing as a kind of tentative interpretation on that cryptic book. These notes were combined with Smith's notes on Daniel, into, voila, the most famous thing he ever did, which was the first Avenus commentary on Daniel and Revelation. Now, it's hard to overstate the significance this book had on Seventh-day Adventists. This book, which you can still find in many Adventist homes, was a tool without measure. Smith drew from sources across the ages, from the early church to the Reformation period to the most recent commentators, including William Miller. And to be sure, the Adventist interpretation has changed on a number of his points since the 1800s, so don't treat it as infallible. But other than those books written by Ellen White, no book did more for Adventists than this one. But let's leave Uriah Smith to get writing, deadlines, deadlines. With John Loughborough tackling the other big problem of 1866, that is getting the Western Health Reform Institution in operation... James really had few responsibilities, and I'm sure it was kind of strange to Seventh-day Adventists who were accustomed to his strong pleas on this or that issue. For the past year, James had largely been quiet, and when Ellen took him on a tour of New England in the fall, they virtually disappeared for three months. And the really strange thing happened that winter, when Ellen grabbed James and slipped out of Battle Creek to move to Greenville, Michigan, about 90 miles away. It's not entirely clear why Ellen saw the need to move, but part of the problem may have been the steady stream of people visiting James with letters demanding his decision as General Conference President. So perhaps she removed him to the country to relax, and by relax I mean to a place where she could make him take daily walks in the snow and put him to work. Why Ellen White seemed fond of moving in the middle of winter all the time, I will never know. The couple returned to Battle Creek for the General Conference that May, 1867, where James White's presidency officially came to an end. Many of the members in Battle Creek didn't like the way that Ellen White had ignored everyone's advice and taken James away from Battle Creek. They certainly didn't like that the Whites were selling furniture and things like that to make ends meet when so many people would have gladly given them money. It was kind of like, what, you think you guys are too good for us to take our money? Those walls took a long time to come down. But it's also possible that, let's face it, James wasn't a very good president in his condition. For the past two years, he had spent like three months at full strength. And James went back to Greenville with none of the responsibilities he was given in 1865. His hand-picked executive committee, his presidency of the General Conference, and his presidency of the Publishing Association. All those, gone. So Ellen White put him to work. She wanted to plant some fruit trees on their new farm, so she made James work. Now, he couldn't do much, but as long as Ellen White was working out in the field, James's pride, or chivalry, refused to let him go inside and rest. And slowly, his muscles began to shape up. And Ellen was devious about finding ways to get James to exercise. Perhaps the most famous example of this it happened when James asked his neighbors to help him cut his hay, which they did. But when it came time to collect that hay, Ellen visited all the neighbors and told them that when James comes asking you for help, tell him you're too busy. Now, they didn't want to do this because it wasn't a very neighborly thing to do, but she made them comply, and she and James had to bring the hay in themselves. With months of this, James was more or less back to full strength in 1867. And to help clear things up in Battle Creek, especially as it related to the never-ending accusations of James White's greed, the Whites opened themselves up to anyone who had a complaint. They opened their bank accounts, so to speak, so anyone who thought James was greedy could take a look at all their money that they had made. And it turned out they didn't really have that much money. A committee would later be formed to study every dollar that James White made, And while it was an impressive amount of money, it was surpassed by how much he gave away. That seemed to soften the hard feelings some had, and James and Ellen went on to Wisconsin for the first Adventist camp meeting. James had suggested such an idea back in 1857, but who listens to James White, huh? It was more or less modeled after what the Methodists did, so it wasn't really groundbreaking in its originality but now Iowa and Wisconsin were starting them in earnest. And for the scattered believers on the frontier of the Adventist church, who seldom numbered more than 100 in any one place at any one time, it was amazing. It was this feeling that American Adventists still have today when they attend camp meeting in the spring and summer of each year. It's this feeling of, hey, we're not the only ones out there. You catch up with old friends. You meet the people who write books that you love and the gifted speakers and the great singers. The only thing that's really changed since 1867 is that few avenues camp anymore, unless you call staying in an RV or a hotel or a dorm room camping, which it is not. Camp meetings really began to take off the next year, 1868, and they were a welcome addition to the church, because James White's illness meant that the church lacked strong leadership, especially along the borders of the church, like Wisconsin and Iowa. With another year's traveling done, and very grateful to have James back on his feet after two years of constant anxiety, Ellen took James back to Greenville. Greenville was a welcome retreat. They still kept the review informed as to what was going on, but they could relax there in a way they couldn't in Battle Creek, where people would stop by all the time. And since Battle Creek was becoming synonymous with stress, there was an added incentive to stay away. In Greenville, For one of the few times in their whole lives, we can get a glimpse of James and Ellen White as normal human beings, not driven by the need to found a church or run a church or plant a church. We see in Greenville what they enjoy doing when left to themselves, reading, writing, and farming. James White returned to Battle Creek in May 1869 for another General Conference meeting. With the investigation clearing his name of having committed who knows what number of crimes people suspected him of, James was re-elected president of the General Conference to begin his second term. Now that he had his health back and some of the most annoying critics were behind him, it was blue skies ahead, right? (laughs) Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is history Project.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews, sometimes I do bonus episodes, you know, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So. If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself